This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I am Jeremy Myers, your host. Is there something in your life you're ashamed of? If you're like most people, there's probably a multitude of such things. Maybe it's something evil that happened to you when you were young. Maybe it's some temptation or addiction to which you fall almost every single day. Well, today, by looking at some shocking truths from Genesis 1.21, we're going to see that God doesn't actually want to get rid of those things in your life. Nope. Instead, God wants to redeem them, to turn them around to be used for His glory. Hey, stick around if you want to see what I mean. Uh, This episode of the One Verse Podcast is brought to you by Logos Bible Software. Just like last week's episode, I do a lot of uh, keyword, word studies, research in the Hebrew text on Genesis 121. And if you want to check my work, I highly recommend you get the silver package of Logos Bible Software. Uh, It's the one that has, it's the minimum package you need to do the Greek and Hebrew word studies that I was able to do for this episode. So uh, you can do that there. It also comes with a bunch of commentaries and just a whole bunch of other resources. If you go and get that, uh, you use my coupon code JMyers6. That will get you 15% off your purchase. Uh, Logos Bible Software doesn't pay me to say this, but uh, if you use that coupon code, I do get paid a little bit, sort of a referral fee or something like that. And uh, that will also sort of help cover the costs of running this podcast and my uh, my blog at redeeminggod.com. So if you do that, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hey, I do want to read one review that came in on iTunes recently. It's from NM Smart One, I'm guessing. I'm not quite sure how that how it said uh, NM Smart One. Yeah, it must be. Here's here's what this person writes. C.S. Lewis would be giving Jeremy's podcast a hearty thumbs up. <laughs> wow, that's uh, high praise. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but uh, thank you very much. He's one of my all-time favorite writers. Anyway, uh, the, the review goes on. It says, As honest an approach to Scripture as you will find if you are seeking a voice to listen to that isn't afraid to break from dogma. You may find yourself coming back here for more, a must-add to your podcast library. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that review on iTunes. Uh, it really means a lot to me that you take the time out of your week to listen and uh, that you have taken also the time out of your day to go and leave a rating and review on iTunes. That's going to help other people find this blog as well. Thank you so very much. Now with that, uh, let's get on to our study of Genesis 121. Uh, in last week's episode of the One Verse Podcast, we looked at the fifth day of creation, which is found in Genesis 1, 20 through 23. Uh, and the one verse that I did not really cover in that episode was Genesis 1.21. And we're going to rectify that situation today by looking, spending the entire show on this one verse. Uh, the reason I wanted to take a detailed look at Genesis 1.21 is because it contains the primary polemical idea 
of day five. So if you've listened to previous episodes of the One Verse podcast, you know that basically I've been trying to point out as we go along uh, that Genesis 1 is a polemic. It's a, a, a counter myth against the religious beliefs of the Egyptians, the Canaanites, and the Babylonians. These were the uh, surrounding cultures that uh, were uh, uh, existing around the time of Moses and the Israelites when they left Egypt and were about to enter into the Promised Land. And so uh, each section of the creation account in Genesis 1 is this, uh, it's a a counter story. It it, uh, contradicts, it points out, it uses similar terminology and ideas that are found in the religious writings and the myths of these other religious beliefs and practices, and Moses is refuting them as he goes along. So uh, I've been pointing this out as we go along to Genesis 1, and um, I, I want to, Genesis 1.21 is sort of the, the key place where we see this polemic, this counter-myth uh, on day 5. So uh, the text says this, Genesis 1.21, So God created great sea creatures, and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded, according to their kind, and every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. All right, so uh, notice, first of all, that he uh, Moses includes this word created. It's the Hebrew word bara. It's right there at the beginning of the verse. So God created, bara. It's, it's the same word, if you know Hebrew at all, if you even listen to what? I guess this is the first real episode of this show, when we looked at Genesis 1-1, it's the word used there. And God created the heavens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, is, this is the first time it's been used since Genesis 1-1. Uh, And and that is significant, really significant, because of what Moses writes next. He wants his readers to know that what he is about to describe as being created here on day five truly is a creation of God, as hard as that will be for them to believe. Moses is using the word created to emphasize the fact that God created what he's about to say. And what is it that God created? on day five, at least here in Genesis 1.21. In Genesis 1.20, Moses talks about the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. But here in Genesis 1.21, Moses draws our attention to God's creation of the great sea creatures. That's what the English says anyway. Uh, And he uses this, he draws our attention by using that word bara. By the way, the only other time Moses uses that word bara in this uh, Genesis 1 account is in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when uh, God gets to the pinnacle of creation and creates humans. So again, only three times at the beginning, here with the creation of the great sea creatures, and then at the pinnacle of creation when God creates Adam and Eve, man and woman. So uh, Moses uses this word to draw special attention to the creation of the sea creatures here in one twenty one. Now, why does Moses want to do that? Why does Moses want to focus our attention on these great sea creatures? What is so important about them that Moses wants to emphasize that they too were created by God? Well, at first glance, in English anyway, there's nothing significant about the phrase. Uh, The New King James Version, uh, which is the one I read from, it softens the Hebrew words there a little bit. It it calls them uh, great sea creatures. The Hebrew, though, is much stronger. The word used in Genesis 1.21 I mentioned this last time, too. It's not the same word used for creatures in 120. It's very confusing that our English translators have taken two different Hebrew words. The Hebrew word in 120 is sharetz, 
It means swarmers. That's what we looked at last time. Uh, and, but for some reason, there are English translators, at least the New King James, translated charrettes as creatures. And then they get down here to this word in Genesis 1.21. It's a completely different word in Hebrew. And they also translate it as creatures. Uh, but again, two different Hebrew words. Uh, charrettes is in 1.20. What's the word here? It's the word tanin. Uh, it means monsters or even serpents, or, or, or maybe even dragons, okay? Uh, it really, the word here is plural, tananim. Uh, and, and you read some commentaries on this, and, oh, well, these are whales or crocodiles or some sharks maybe or something like that. But the word is much larger and much scarier than just whales and crocodiles. In fact, uh, just this week, uh, I watched uh, Jurassic World, if you've seen that movie, uh, you may recall that there is a giant sea creature in the uh, watery part of, I don't know what they, that big giant water tank. Um, it's a giant sea monster. Imagine that. That is what Moses is describing. In fact, uh, I, I looked it up. That sea creature there in Jurassic World was called a Mosasaur. And... Um, it, it, it really did exist, or at least something like that. It was about 50 feet long or so, and it sort of looked like the one in the movie. So they did their research for that movie, I guess. Uh, there's a link in the show notes which contains more information about the Mosasaur. Uh, anyway, now, it's possible, it is possible, that when Moses was writing, I, did these Mosasaurs exist? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe there were still legends about them existing. Maybe they really did exist back then and they've just gone extinct since then. Uh, you know, I'm sure science will tell you that these uh, existed millions and billions of years ago, whatever, and they got, and maybe in, in which case, if if that's true, again, if, hear the word if there, if that's true, then obviously they didn't exist in the days of Moses. Uh, so maybe he just had heard legends about them. Look, I, I don't know. We're getting into the science here. It's not the point. Moses is writing uh, not to prove science. He's, there were there were legends about great sea monsters then, just as there are today. And Moses wants the people then to know that God created them. But even then, uh, the point is not so much about what monsters do or do not exist out in the ocean. The point is Moses is writing a, a polemic against the religious myths of the other religions in the surrounding region. Let's take the Babylonian. First, I've talked a lot about the Enuma Elish. You might remember that in the Enuma Elish, uh, the god Marduk goes to war against this female goddess who is in rebellion against the other gods. And guess what? This female goddess is a sea dragon. And um, her name was Tiamat. Now, interestingly enough, Tiamat, the first thing she does, this is in Tablet 1, the very first thing she does when she decides to rebel against the other gods is she creates an army of serpents and sea dragons and monsters which will do her bidding and help her. They're going to be her foot soldiers, in, in a sense. So she creates this army that are going to kill, maim, and destroy. And here, here's what uh, Tablet 1, let me read a little, little bit for you from Tablet 1. It says this, She spawned monster serpents, sharp of tooth and merciless of fang. With poison instead of blood, she filled their bodies. Fierce monster vipers she clothed with terror. With splendor she decked them and made them of lofty stature. She set up vipers and dragons and the monster Lahamu. 
and hurricanes and raging hounds and scorpion men and mighty tempests and fishmen and rams. They bore cruel weapons without fear of the fight. Her commands were mighty. None could resist them. After this fashion, huge of stature, she made 11 monsters. And the tablet goes on from there. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You get the idea. The Babylonian account speaks of these sea monsters, these dragons, these 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 sea serpents, and then, of course, the storms as well. And uh, the things that are launched at the rebellion of Tiamat, uh, they're, they're launched against the rest of the Babylonian gods. And of course, then they call upon, they, they don't know, they, they're losing the battle. So they call upon Marduk to deliver them, which he does by killing Tiamat. And then he... He cuts her in half and creates the rest of the world from Tiamat's body. So that's the Enuma Elish. So the original rebellious army of Tiamat was these sea dragons, these sea monsters. All right, and that's the Babylonian Enuma Elish. It's not just them, though. It's not just the Babylons. Um, the Tanin, the, the, the sea monsters, also play a special role in the Baal cycle, the Canaanite Baal cycle. I've, I've uh, talked about the Baal cycle in previous shows as well. Uh, if you remember, in the Baal cycle, Baal is captured uh, by the sea dragon deity and then carried down to Mot, the god of death. Uh, that happens during the winter months. And then what happens is he is rescued and free by freed in the spring by his sister wife, whose name is Anat. Anyway, uh, before she, before Anat wages war against Mot, the, the death god, she boasts of all her victories over other enemies of Baal. Basically, she's saying, look at all the enemies of Baal I killed, Moat. Don't you think that you can stand against me? Uh, anyway, in one place, she says this. What enemy rises up against Baal? What adversary against him who rides the clouds? Have I not slain Yom? That's the sea. Beloved of El? Have I not annihilated Nahar? That's the river. The great God, have I not muzzled, you ready, Tanin, holding her in a muzzle? There's that same word, Tanin, same word we just read in, in uh, Genesis 121. I have slain Lotan, Leviathan, uh, also mentioned at various places in the Bible, by the way. Uh, the foul fanged with seven heads. Okay, so that's, um, that's the Canaanite, Baal cycle. The Egyptian parallels also have parallels as well. Uh, Egyptians um, had a god named Apep. He was the underworld sea serpent, uh, was the personification of all evil. Uh, much like the uh, Canaanite Baal cycle, it was believed that Apep battled Ra, the, the primary sun deity of Egypt, uh, battled Ra, Apep, and uh, battled Ra every single night trying to stop him from uh, rising again in the morning. What, what, what Apep did, interestingly enough, was swallowed the sun. You might recall in Exodus 7, when Aaron and Moses first go to Pharaoh's court, what's one of the things they do? Aaron throws his rod onto the ground, and it becomes a serpent. And uh, the e Egyptian uh, wise men, the, the, their pharaoh, or let's see, their uh, magicians, I guess, sorcerers, I'm not sure what the word is there in Exodus 7, I can't recall, uh, they're able to duplicate this trick. They throw their rods on the ground and they also become serpents. And it's interesting, you remember that uh, Aaron's serpent rod swallows up all the serpent rods of the Egyptian sorcerers. Uh, it's very interesting because they have this Egyptian legend, uh, religious myth about a pep 
swallowing raw every night in battle. And so here, Aaron's serpent bottle or swallows all the serpents of the Egyptians. Anyway, interesting parallel there. But uh, so we have this this serpent, though, that uh, tries to stop every day from coming by swallowing the sun in this, uh, the, the sea. Anyway, uh, so we have these three parallels, and it's certain, it's certain that the uh, Israelite people would have remembered these, you know, whether they knew all three or just, just the one from Egypt that they came from, or maybe the one from the Canaan, Canaanites where they were heading. I don't know, but it's certain they would have known some of these stories as they listened to Moses describe the great sea monster serpents here in Genesis 121. By the way, this is not the only mention of the sea monsters in the Bible. Uh, later Old Testament texts talk about this um, sea monster named Rahab, uh, Leviathan. There's, I'll, I'll put, uh, um, well, Rahab's in Job 9, uh, Leviathan's in Isaiah 27 and Psalm 74. Uh, by the way, Rahab is not the same as the Jericho prostitute. <laughs> she was likely named after Rahab the sea monster. So that, that's her, maybe she even worshipped Rahab, the sea dragon, the sea monster. Not the same person at all. Anyway, uh, in these other passages, these sea monsters are described as violent forces of chaos that, that are opposed to God's will. Um, Rahab is, uh, represents chaos and evil, sometimes is described as a vampire woman who drinks the blood of her enemies. And a Leviathan is a sea dragon who has many heads, like Hydra, uh, and can also breathe fire. All right, so, so that's what the rest of the Bible talks about, these sea monsters, Leviathan and Rahab, uh, and even Yom, uh, the sea god, uh, the sea against, uh, uh, of chaos. Anyway, um, look, although there are these, these great sea monsters and sea serpents uh, talked about in the Bible, uh, Moses is arguing here, uh, he's doing a polemic against the myths of these other religions. Uh, since the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Canaanites, they all had these teachings about these sea monsters that live in the sea, uh, and, and they're found in Job, Psalms, and Isaiah as well. Um, God, through Moses here, is showing, and this is the exact same message we see in Job, Psalms, and Isaiah, it's the exact same point made in those other texts, that God is not threatened by them. God has defeated these monsters, that God is in control of them. And that is the same point Moses is making here. Now, they're not actually in rebellion against him yet, um, that's a different issue. In fact, that sort of enters into the scene in Genesis chapter 3. But here at the very beginning, Moses is saying that uh, while there are these sea monsters and these other religious myths of Babylon and Canaan and Egypt, uh, in those places they do not do the bidding of the gods, at least the good gods. There are rebellion against them. Moses is saying here, though, that these monsters, these sea monsters, they are not only not gods, they're not gods at all, but that God created them and they do his bidding, just like any other fish in the sea or bird of the air. They're not in rebellion against God. They are created by God and are under his dominion and control. Um, in the Canaanite bell cycle, it even uses that word tanin, as I pointed out, to talk about these sea dragons that were slain by a knot. So, um, 
The important point here to recognize is that Moses is not simply writing about how God made sea monsters, sea creatures, you know, and that's the point. As if, you know, if we were to try to read this scientifically, we'd say, well, there were these sea monsters like the Mosasaur who lived back then and they're now extinct and that's the only point in Genesis 1.21. No, the real point here is uh, that other religious groups taught about these sea gods, and they were in rebellion against the, the gods and sought to destroy and annihilate the world and kill all humanity. And here Moses is saying, no, God made them. They are in God, under God's control, and in fact, they are even good. Um, so that, that, that's the point that Moses is making here. Moses is taking the scariest and the most dreaded monsters of his day, and assuring the people that God is more powerful than these sea monsters. He's not even threatened by them. He made them and gave them their role. Okay, and the most astonishing thing about this, um, it's just, it's just if you just pause and think about what Moses is saying, how he would have been heard by the people in his day, it is just astonishing. Moses is saying, whatever evil you can imagine, God is greater. Moses is saying that the Tanin are large sea monsters that were created by God, but which are under his control and are therefore no threat to God or his power. They're not rivals to his power. They were created by God precisely because he is sovereign over them. Now, the people of other religions, they could never be sure. We talked about this before. They could never be sure that when the sun set in the evening, there would be another day. They could never be sure that these sea monsters, these sea dragons, wouldn't come boiling up out of the ocean to eat and destroy them all. They could never be sure that these sea dragons wouldn't somehow defeat the gods that they worshipped and the entire world would cease to exist. Because somehow, you know, their, their deities that they worshipped, they were not all-powerful. They lived a very long time and they were, you know, immortal to a degree, I suppose, but they could be defeated. They could be killed by these gods of chaos and death and destruction. And that was a very scary way to live. And then if this other god became in control or came into power, they were evil and violent and and most likely they would enslave all humanity and and put us to torture and death and, and, uh, you know, you would die a horrible death. Imagine living under such a worldview. And that is precisely the worldview that Moses is counteracting here with his creation story. He wants the Israelites to know that there are no other gods to concern them. God has no rivals that are against them. Since these sea serpents represent evil, chaos, sin, and rebellion, Moses is saying, whatever evil, chaos, rebellious situation that you might be experiencing, God is not threatened by it. He's telling Israelites, don't be concerned by it. God is not concerned by it. God, our God, is God. He alone is God. He has no rivals. There's one shocking truth left, though, from verse 21. Moses isn't done. He's just described how God made these sea monsters, these sea dragons. They're under his control, under his dominion. And now Moses makes the most outlandish claim of all. He not only says that God made these sea monsters, but then at the end of Genesis 1-21, Moses says that God saw them and they are good. It's difficult to grasp how shocking this would have been for the people who heard Moses say this. Uh, Due to the way the sea dragons are talked about in the Babylonian, the Canaanite, and the Egyptian mythology, most people viewed the sea dragons as the personification of evil, the epitome of chaos and violence. They were creatures of rebellion 
against all that was good and right and true. So when Moses calls them good at the end of Genesis 1.21, it would be like me saying today that, you ready for this? The devil is good. Now, (laughs) that goes against everything we believe. And I'm not saying the devil is good. Don't hear me wrong. I am not saying that. Do not say that Jeremy Myers believes the devil is good. I am not saying that. I'm saying it would be like if someone came today saying the devil is good. The way we think about Satan and the devil is the way the people back then thought about these sea monsters. They were evil incarnate, the personification of everything bad and and chaos and orderly and just their one goal in life was to destroy you and ruin the world and enslave and kill everybody. Okay, so that is the shock that the Israelites would have experienced when they heard Moses say that these sea monsters, that God made them and that they are good. The great sea monsters, the Tanin, are good? It can't be. Everything we know about them is bad. They're evil. They're violent. They kill. They destroy. They're in rebellion. And all that's true. But... Moses is preparing his audience, and and I believe he's, you know, us, thousands of years later, for two truths. We'll end with these two truths. Moses is, uh, first of all, Moses is preparing his audience for the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, okay? Uh, Remember, this statement from 121 is pre-sin, pre-fall, pre-rebellion. So, when God creates these sea monsters— and then calls them good, the ultimate question that is going to pop into their minds and ours is, well, we know that they're bad. So how did something good that God created become bad? It's the same question we have with Satan. We know that originally Satan was good. God created him good, but he became bad. So the question is, what happened? Right, So uh, the answer is found, at least part of the answer, I should say, is found in Genesis 3. And we'll look at that in uh, greater detail when we get there. That's the first thing. Moses is preparing them. Second, though, Moses is teaching the Israelites about redemption. Okay, And this is the key point that I want to emphasize today. Put yourself in the Israelites' sandals. They had just been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. Uh, They used to be slaves in Egypt, and now they had been redeemed. They had been set free. They had been uh, bought by God out of slavery and set free. So by referring to the Tanin, the sea monsters, as good, I think that Moses is redeeming the myths of these other religions. He is refuting them by redeeming them. Uh, Moses, he's not referring to these other myths to affirm or promote them. Okay, now I'm not, I don't mention them in my podcast for that purpose either. Uh, instead, Moses is seeking to refute, uh, refute them by redeeming them. And the reason Moses uses the terms and ideas from the surrounding pagan religions is not to say that those pagan religions are also correct or that, you know, all religions lead to God or anything like that. No, uh, the reason Moses is referring to these other myths is to point people to the one true God. God is redeeming these other myths by pointing them to himself. And that's what Moses is doing with these sea serpents. Uh, most of the peop- most people thought of them as slaves to evil. Um, Moses is saying that they were, in fact, original creations of God, which had become perverted and sold into slavery to sin and rebellion. But uh, there is a hint here that God could 
redeem them back to their original purpose, just as God had redeemed the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and was now preparing them to enter into their original purpose as the people of God in the world. So uh, by starting Genesis 121 with the description of something everyone knew was wrong and evil, and then ending it with this statement about how it was part of God's good creation, Moses is emphasizing once again this biblical truth of redemption, showing to the Israelites that even from the very beginning, redemption is a central activity of God. I've talked about this in previous episodes. Redemption is one of the central activities of God in the Bible. Over and over and over again, God takes what is evil, what belongs to the darkness, and he redeems it by bringing it into the light. He buys it back, sets it free, and puts it on the course that he intended, originally intended for. Think of the cross, okay? Uh, The cross is a perfect example of redemption. Now, I'm not talking, when I I say the cross, uh, I'm not talking about how Jesus redeemed us, through his death on the cross. I'm not talking about that at all. No, I'm talking about the cross itself. Those wooden beams uh, that that is the cross. Okay, and I'm talking about how Jesus redeemed that. Not how he redeemed us on the cross, how Jesus redeemed the cross. Most people don't realize this, that Jesus redeemed the cross. Uh, Prior to the death of Jesus on the cross, uh, the cross itself was a symbol, a, a very powerful symbol of subjugation, of of domination, of violence, of of, uh, Roman rule by brute force. Uh, Probably during the Roman occupation of um, the known world at the time, the cross was the greatest symbol of evil that existed. Okay? But we don't think of it that way today, do we? When people think of the cross, I mean, we mark ourselves with the cross, we wear crosses, we hang crosses on our walls and in our churches, and okay, uh, the, the cross is not a symbol of evil today. What is it? The cross today is a symbol of love, of grace, and forgiveness, and reconciliation. It's not a symbol of torture and bloodshed and suppression, even though that's what it was in the days of Jesus. It's the complete opposite today. How did that happen? How did a symbol of torture and bloodshed and violence become a symbol of love and grace and forgiveness. I'll tell you how. It's been redeemed. Jesus redeemed the cross. If you were, if you were a Jew living in the days of Jesus, uh, and a prophet came and told you that uh, he worshipped the God of the cross, <laughs> you would think that this prophet worshipped a murderous, violent, bloodthirsty, domineering, torture-craving, power-hungry God of war. That's what the cross symbolized. But when Jesus came along, he went to the cross, which was the clearest symbol of everything he was opposed to, and then he emptied the cross of its symbolism of horror and violence and instilled new symbolism into the cross so that it now represents love, grace, and forgiveness. And you and I can both say that we worship the God of the cross. And everybody knows what we're talking about. Now, uh, this practice of uh, redeeming the cross is, is it's just one example of what, I'm sorry, this example of redeeming the cross is just one example of the practice that God has always been doing since the very beginning. God is a God of redemption. He redeems you. He redeems me. Uh, he redeems the cross. Uh, here in Genesis 1, he redeems the great sea monsters. 
by showing that they were not originally evil monsters opposed to God, but were simply aspects of his creation, which he blesses along with all the other creatures. He even invites them to multiply and fill the waters. People didn't want more sea monsters. They wanted less. But God is here in, here in original saying, no, they were good. They are good. I want them to multiply and fill the waters as well. That's the truth of redemption. God is sowing the seeds of redemption here on even these sea monsters. And the truth of redemption, this earth-shattering truth of redemption, is true for you and me as well. Listen, I started with today by asking you if there was something in your life you were ashamed of, which uh, seems to have you under its control. Maybe it's a temptation or an addiction some sin you fall prey to over and over and over. Maybe it's some bad event in your past, some horrible memory, something just evil that happened to you when you were younger. Now, if you're like me, I have things like this. If you're like me, then you often just pray to God, you know, if it's a sin or something that you fall to over and over, you pray to God to forgive you and to deliver you from it and to help you Uh, move past it, and maybe even to remove this temptation from you. If it was something that happened in your past, maybe you've asked God to deliver you from it, to uh, even help you forget it. And, 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 you know, those are fine prayer requests. But in recent years, I've come to see that these areas in our lives, they're, they're not necessarily something God wants to remove. Instead, these are the things God wants to redeem. Now, we see these things as evil, and they are evil. Don't get me wrong. But what do we see from Scripture? That God can take what was intended for evil and turn it around for good. That's the truth in Genesis. It's the truth all over the Scripture. It's the truth with the cross. It's even the truth here in Genesis 121 about these great sea monsters. So the next time evil rears its ugly head in your life, listen, here's a challenge. Don't ask God to remove it. Instead, ask God to redeem it. If it's something horrible that happened to you in your past, uh, maybe God can redeem it by, I don't know, providing ways for you to help rescue, deliver, or heal other people who had something similar happen to them in their past. Maybe if it's a particular addiction or temptation. Well, maybe God can show you how to use your experiences in this addiction or temptation to help other people who face similar troubles. You know, if there's a sin you you constantly fall prey to, uh, look, in my life when something happens like that, uh, I find that the sin is usually a result of using some good motivation or desire in a wrong way. And uh, that God redeems the sin, not by getting rid of the motivation or desire, but teaching me how to use that good motivation and desire in the right way. And maybe God can redeem the sin in your life in the same way. Look, I, I I don't know what struggles you're facing. I don't know what sea monsters might be in your life right now. But I do know this. God is a God of redemption. And he not only wants to redeem you, but he also wants to redeem everything about you, including that pain in your past, including the mistakes of your present, including the fears of your future. So whatever troubles are in your life, don't be threatened by them any longer. Instead, 
ask God to redeem, redeem them. So as you're praying for this redemption, listen, watch how God takes the evil that has happened to you in your life and the enslavement and sin that has you wrapped in chains. And watch how God turns it around for good, how he redeems the things for his purposes and his glory. These are the stories that fill Genesis, that fill Bible, the Bible, and fill all of world history. Do you have such a story of redemption? I would love to hear it. If you're comfortable sharing it online, you can do so in the comment section for this podcast. It's at redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 121. If you're not comfortable sharing it online, you can reach out to me with a private message on Facebook or through the contact form on my website as well. Uh, These stories are very encouraging for me. And boy, if you're able to share it publicly, that is one way God can redeem those things by giving other people hope who might be experiencing similar situations that you were in and that God has redeemed. I hope this podcast has been the first step in seeing redemption in your life. I know that God is something is God is up to something great in your life. Trust him. He can take the most evil thing in your life and turn it around for good.